0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: I would like to welcome you all to the third event in our series connected to the Revolution Russian Art Exhibition. If you've already been there, then you'll probably know that the exhibition also includes a life-size reproduction of Elisitsky's unrealized proposal for a communal flat, And it was that part of the exhibition that inspired this talk, which aims to take a closer look at these communal ways of living that were taken up in post-revolutionary Russia and see whether they can offer anything to architecture today. And I also wanted to mention that, even though this is the third and last in our series of events, we are actually hosting this series in collaboration with the Design Museum, and they will also host two talks in their ways of life series which are on taking place on the 25th of April which is a talk on cinema mass media and propaganda and on the 30th of May which is titled building a new feminism which is actually looking at the sort of feminist implications of communal housing that were taken up in post-revolutionary Russia so I would definitely recommend it and with that, I would like to introduce you to Clem Cecil, who's very kindly agreed to chair this debate this evening. Clem boasts a wide range of knowledge on uh, Russian architecture of the period that we're discussing today and in general. And she's currently the executive director of at Pushkin House, one of the leading Russian cultural institutions in London. And they also boast a very interesting exhibition and events programme. So if you're interested, you should definitely take a look if you haven't before. Clem is also the co-founder of the Moscow Arch- Preservation Society and she is a trustee of Save Europe's Heritage and a former director of Save Britain's Heritage and Save Europe's Heritage so thank you Clam.
2: Thanks a lot Helen and thanks for inviting me to come and share tonight's discussion which is on a subject very close to my heart so today we're talking about buit, or way of life this uh, Russian word that's quite difficult to translate um, or a new communal and um, we've got a very interesting panel of speakers talking about all different aspects of this issue. Um, but we're taking, as a point of departure, communal living in Russia. As Helen said in the show, there is this reconstruction of an unrealized, or a model of an unrealized um, project of El Lissitzky for Narconfin. Narconfin was built, but um, it had a different interior. Um, and I think Andy might be talking briefly touching on Narcon tonight. Um, um, uh, so we've got three speakers talking uh, about... Firstly, we've got Andy talking about the Russian historical, the Soviet aspect. Andy is a um, lecturer in modern Russian and Soviet history at the University of Reading, and also author of Living the Revolution, Urban Communes and Soviet Socialism, 1917 to 1932, so exactly this period of the exhibition. And um, he's interested in how radical ideology was experienced in everyday life at that time. Um, And then um, Anna Pujané has flown over from Barcelona to join us today. Um, She is co-founder of Barcelona-based Mayo Studio and winner of the 2016 Wheelwright Prize. And this is for a proposal to do research into kitchenless cities. And um, Anna will be talking about these kitchenless cities this evening looking at, and looking at case studies from Senegal, China, Canada and Singapore. So taking us to other places and looking at um, a non-communist um, aspect of communal life. And mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm delighted to introduce Helen Jarvis, who's Reader in Social Geography at Newcastle University. And um, Helen will be looking not only at examples from our isles but also internationally and her research interests include social architectures of shared space um, and self-governance in collaborative living arrangements she's part of the co-housing network and was researcher in residence at christiana Um, helen introduced me just briefly my interest is When I got involved in architectural conservation, campaigning in Russia, it was really through Narcomfin That was the first building we were interested in. And when we were campaigning for it, talking about its history and the communal aspect of its design was um, absolutely central to how we we raised interest in its fate. When I came back to Britain, we were campaigning to save terraced housing in northern cities which absolutely have a communal aspect. The streets, the shared spaces, the parks that were planned at the same time. Um, and I now am very lucky to live on a semi-communal estate, Golden Lane Estate in East London, which has a lot of shared facilities. And um, so I'm a great believer that it is possible to experience communal life in, all, in many different ways. So I hope that tonight we're gonna be looking at that. So I would like to hand over first to Andy.
3: Okay, great, thank you very much. Uh, yes, I want to take us all the way back to 1917. Uh, the foundation of the world's first socialist state. Um, And I want to start off with a couple of quotes um, from people reflecting on that time. We were 18, 20 years old. What did we talk about? We talked about revolution and love. We were revolution fanatics. We had great plans. We dreamt of worldwide revolution. We wanted to build a new world with revolution in our hearts, as we said in those days. Now, in her sympathetic and poignant anthology, Um, Svetlana Alexeyevich, who collects these quotes, um, she time and again reveals the power of a revolutionary vision and how it inspired people um, in real life. The October Revolution, it promised a new dawn, it promised a red dawn, and it promised a new way of life. It promised a new future, the idea that you could remake life, including buit, including this idea of the the way of life, the manner of life, the everyday things that we take for granted, the things that are hidden in plain sight, custom, habit, morals and mores, these types of things. Uh, And one of the interviewees that Svetlana Alexeyevich came across also said this wonderful um, thing. We loved the future, the people of the future. We argued about when the future was going to come. And this, to me, sums up exactly what we're talking about today. The young activists after 1917 were generally inspired by a vision of a future, by a vision of the new way of life, of as they called it. Again, the idea that you could reject the old and implement from from afresh a brand new vision of everyday life. And this was something that could inspire them. It, It felt tangible. It made ideology tangible, it made it real. It wasn't kind of the dense tome of Das Kapital, it was something that they could live. And I think that's important to remember when understanding the Russian Revolution uh, and when understanding these communal ambitions. Um, But just as by way of example of attempts to build this new way of life, I'll briefly reference um, Narkomfin. I won't go into too much detail here, but what we need to realise about Finn is that it's architecture using the principle of the social condenser, simply the idea that you would live in a space that would act as a stepping stone to socialism. It would build your socialist consciousness, it would make you interact with people. So you have um, up on the far left uh, what would actually be the communal canteen and kindergarten and kind of communal activities where you would eat every evening and, and gather. And then you'd have private apartments, yes, but they would um, promote interaction. Some of them had private stoves, others didn't. And the idea would be that you would move from an apartment with a private stove into one that didn't have a private stove and then you had to use the communal kitchen. And so again, you were building your socialistness. You're, you're building your social, socialist consciousness. So again, it's a stepping stone to socialism. And we see this built between 28 and 30, is so 32 actually it's complete? It, it maybe it is 30. I, for some reason I thought it was like a uh, complete by 1930. Um, what else is going on at this time? If we're looking at pre-1917 into, into the early 20s, there's this idea of Nouveau-Brit being movement from the old way of life into these communal canteens. The idea, and we'll have perhaps reference to this in a moment, the idea that you would move from a private bourgeois space where old habits were passed down, like... Recipes were passed down from mother to daughter. You'd move into communal canteens where you would eat together collectively, where this would free women from the burden of cooking, but this was also free 50% of the population into the workforce. It was rational and it was um, cultural revolution, as they called it. Cultural revolution isn't just something that happens in China. Uh, The Bolsheviks are talking about cultural revolution as well. There's lots of literature going around about this the, about the kind of red life and red uh, new way of life, um, talking about what it is, talking about um, very much promoting a, a new socialist um, lifestyle um, and advice literature, talking about healthy, modern, rational and scientific living, the idea that you can order your life, and this is something new, rather than the ad hoc, accidental way of life uh, in, in a former czarist, bourgeois world. Um, this is also... Um, the idea of cultural revolution, the idea of a new way of life. This is precisely what Stalin and Trotsky were arguing about when they argued about whether foul language was a sign of proletarian character or whether it was somehow something that the proletariat had to shake off in order to advance themselves. So whilst they wanted a new way of life, they didn't necessarily agree on what the new way of life was. Again, Stalin thought that swearing was a good socialist sign of your, uh, good socialist credentials. Uh, whereas Trotsky thought it was somehow a sign of your <coughs> backwardness that you had to overcome to, become, to be a true socialist. Um, and this is all really part of what was being termed at the time a, a third front, so beyond politics and beyond civil war. It's the cultural front promoting revolution in this area. It picks up on the writings of Nikolai Chernyshevsky and his famous novel, Lenin's favourite novel, What is to be Done from 1863, in which there are a number of characters that are presented as archetypal new um, revolutionary people. But there's also uh, Pavlovna, uh, a key figure and feminist within the novel, who sets up her own common apartment. And they live together in this common apartment, sharing everything from underwear and money. And this this kind of literary image continues um, to hold great importance come 1917 and beyond which is what i want to really talk to you about today and i want to talk to you about the um people involved in commune living i want to introduce you to these kind of fiery-eyed young activists behind me note the young chap with floppy um black hair um, wearing sporting a leather jacket that leather jacket is trendy at the time that's a sign uh, of your revolutionary credentials. Leather jackets were worn by the Red Army. So by wearing this, he is, you know, he's basically the equivalent of a, a Che Guevara T-shirt wearing teen. Um, so these young activists, they start to read about all these ideas about the new way of life, about novel breeds in the press. And they take over apartments. They start off by requisitioning apartments uh, from 1918. Um, and... In, in groups of this, such as 10 or 11, they tried to live socialism as they understood it. They set up um, spaces. W- they often knocked down internal walls to prevent bourgeois private spaces from existing, sometimes making buildings somewhat unstable. Um, <laughs> they agreed to share everything from their underwear to all their clothing and their shoes. They put their money, often they were students, so they might put their stipend into a common pot, as they called it, and they would agree on how to spend that money every month and allocate it rationally. Um, so that was a sign of equality, in, in, in a way. Um, and indeed, further signs of equality were the fact that they insisted on domestic chores being shared between men and women. And here we see in the top image two men doing the ironing. The ironic thing about this commune, the McClinsky Mok- Lane commune, is that the women put it to the vote a few days in that men shouldn't be allowed to iron because men can't iron. All they can do is burn the damn sheets. <laughs> But they somehow managed to resolve this and and go on to live something of a collective lifestyle. Um, They also set up things like this, which they called a red corner, uh, sometimes referred to as the Lenin corner. These are spaces where they would house their their readings, their newspapers, pravda, and they would read and enlighten themselves. Again, the idea of being socialist is a product of the Enlightenment in that respect, that you would you would be um, enlightening yourself and, and, and advancing your consciousness. So again, they, they changed these apartments in, in order to fit this lifestyle. Uh, beyond these kind of early examples, uh, where you have effectively just a few hundred young activists participating in this lifestyle in Petrograd, the, it, the movement starts to grow because whilst they're reading about the new way of life in the newspapers, the newspapers then start to report on them, excited that this new way of life is actually happening in reality. So it kind of becomes a revolutionary meme in a way. It becomes kind of something that can be replicated, and it can be symbolic of your revolutionary credentials. So in uh, um, student dormitories, for instance, some groups set up in, in single uh, student rooms. But others then started to expand across other rooms and encouraged others to, to join them, becoming what were known as floor communes, taking over entire floors. And they even talked about becoming dormitory communes, taking over entire dormitories. Now, I ha- haven't found any examples of, of these actually existing, but they talked about it. They were trying to requisition entire buildings, or they were talking about it at this point. And one example is the Jubeke commune, as it called itself. Um, So this image here shows you that they took over an entire floor, they set up their own communal canteen, they set up their own space for collective leisure activities, and they they tried to live uh, socialism within one building. This little caricatured image is actually a self-drawn caricature from uh, one of the uh, the, um, commune activists in the group, and he kind of presents himself as this kind of priggish little, skinny little runt of an activist. And that's exactly what he was, really. That's exactly what many of these young commune um, activists were. And in this image, he's actually, he's got a p- petition in his hand and he's going to the university authorities dictating that they should all um, be living in this way. All students should copy these communes, by example. The other images here are uh, a notice board. So They have a notice board, so all the chores could <coughs> be shared between the commune activists. But there's also this really fascinating Taylorist timetable, which is uh, setting out uh, how, what to do on, on Saturday. Uh, and they're, they're implementing a Taylorist timetable. So Frederick Winslow, Taylor, uh, engineer in America, helps set up the regulation of Henry Ford's factories and kind of dictates how workers should live their life and, and their working activities. In the Soviet Union, this is embraced with a kind of more socialist um, vision and the idea is that they could make everyday life into a science, that they could regulate their lives and be disciplined in the way they live and therefore be socialist. Again, it's the opposite to what went before the revolution. It's the opposite to the accidental. It's the opposite to the indulgent bourgeois lifestyle. It's regulated, it's, it's scientific. Uh, and, and this is, again, really what they're aspiring to. Um, and just to sum up here, I think what we see within the, with these groups is is utopia. Um, now, this isn't utopia as we often use the word today to mean some kind of flight of fancy or a, a, it's a derogative word, really, isn't it? Um, derogatory word. And indeed, the Bolsheviks didn't, didn't much like the word utopia. They, they would reject it if, if they were called utopian. But what these groups are is, is utopia in the sense as, as a genre, as an escape from the inherited world. Um, this is utopia, as the Marxist philosopher Ernst Bloch said. Um, the determined negation of that which merely is in the name of what should be. It's a radical challenge to the conventional way of thinking about what is possible and what is impossible. Um, the prospect of living differently and redrawing the boundaries of everyday life is exactly what these groups are about. It's a vision of a leap forward into an alternative future. It's, it's an attempt by these young activists to be the future, to be the people of the future, as uh, Alexei, um, as Svetlana Alexievich's interviewees um, tell us. Uh, so in, in short, to kind of steal a line from Gandhi, these people were trying to be the change they wanted to see in the world. Or to quote a Russian author, which would be a better example to quote, they were striving towards it, seeking to bring the revolution into life. Thank you.
2: I now like to introduce Anna
0: Pužanec. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start uh, thanking. Thank you, Kate, Helen, and Gonzalo for inviting me, and also the Royal Academy for hosting this ever wonderful exhibition. I'm delighted to be here with you this evening. Have to apologize because as, uh, English is not my mother tongue and we don't have that much time. I'm gonna read tonight, uh, but I do it my best. So um, meanwhile, collective uh, kitchens and kitchenless living have been properly known by its communist character as we're hearing now. I will try to explain um, this evening that collective architecture is apolitical. Social spaces lack, per se, a political ideology. They have been sometimes used as political tools, but as uh, the architect Aldo Rossi claims, form cannot be political per se. In fact, it can be only repoliticized again and again over the course in a, in the, of the time in a never ending recurring cycle. Long before commonarchy appeared in the Soviet Union, there was a time in New York when housing had also collective spaces and services. At that time, the house was designed not as a single entity, but as a set of connected fragments that could be changed and added depending on the need and on the demand. The kitchen was optional as well, as, as as the rest of the rooms, and sometimes it was left apart, so to say, kitchenless. And in opposition to Communal this North American typology, lack of a political agenda, but it had a pure commercial aim. I call this research kitchenless city. The story of this typology dates back to the economic depression that followed the American Civil War in the 19th century, when due to the lack of land and housing stock, most of the American cities needed to build new apartments. At that moment, new architectural solutions appear. And it was in 1871 when it opened the first apartment building with hotel services. This typology between apartment and hotel was quite successful. It not only reduced significantly the cost of living, but also eliminated the annoyances of housekeeping, and consequently, and that's really important for me, redefined the role of woman at home. Life in these new apartments therefore constituted at some point an alternative that had more to do with the idea of comfort rather than with the cost, the housing cost. And proof of that is the diversity of uh, of the dwellers, and uh, as well as the range of size and housing cost. We can find among t- this typology cases as this one, really tiny apartments with uh, two rooms and a bathroom, to cases as this one that you can see here. There's two apartments per floor, an incredible amount of rooms, and of course, no kitchen. So. I have spent many years collecting these cases and mapping them in order to understand what happened, why, and how. In New York department hotel has its peak between 1901 and 1929. Alongside it with the comfort of living a la carte, with collective domestic services, and so on, part of its success was due to enactment of the enactment of the so-called Tenement House Law, a law that regulated the conditions of residential buildings. And the left, curiously, kisses apartment buildings out of its scope. So suddenly, in the same lot, in the same site, an apartment building with collective services could be built higher and larger than other type of building types. So this loser legal framework made this typology clearly advantageous for developers who saw them as good investments. They were more profitable at the end. Therefore, these new, new residential houses had a, strong, a strongly cumulative aim and commercial aim. That is one of the reasons why it was highly appreciated that such buildings could offer flexible-sized apartments to satisfy a bigger demand and accommodate, of course, a wider social range. For instance, the one that we, we can see in the, in the image, the apartments of the San Remo had an adjoining room that could be added, um, it could be open, expanding the initial space of the apartment with an extra room, or connecting two, three, or even four apartments in the row. Then Sonia, another case similar to that, for its parts also allowed that some flats, some flats could be extending thanks to an adjoining room that could be open on demand, similar as the Sanremo that we have just seen. In Tanzania, the offerings span from one-bedroom apartment to (laughs) fourteen rooms apartment, with or without kitchen. So the the variety was quite large. (coughs) What is also nice is to see how residents could, in this case, could uh, either in their private room or in the collective uh, dining room that has uh, had a capacity of one thousand three hundred people. So it was quite large. Then Sony also had all kinds of facilities, extraordinary for that time, as a, as a pool in the basement. Of course, at that time, they were obsessed with electrical gadgets and etc. A large bathroom, a parking lot, which was uh, not common at that time, and a roof uh, that had, a, uh, together with a, next to a gathering space, it had a farm that could provide food for its inhabitants daily. These commercial cases with collective uh, services n- were not only the ones that happened during that time. In fact, in parallel, city proposals emerged that going beyond the limits of uh, the building, eliminated kitchens from homes and generated urban systems of, um, co- with collectiv- collectivization of domestic work. It's, this is quite interesting. It's interesting to point out um, that while the first ones were mainly promoted by the private sector with, uh, and generally the lack of uh, political agenda, this, those urban projects that I'm going to show you um, next are on the contrary. They were clearly influenced by utopian socialists and sought to generate social reforms through that reorganization of the house and the city. Among them, Albert Kinsey-Owens, the one that we have in the picture, um, was, um, Albert Kinsey-Owens' project was the most uh, ambitious one and one of the earliest ones as well. Um, Owen promoted a city in New Mexico called Topolobambo, a city which was uh, created following Fourier's <coughs> principles and where apartments, hotels, and cooperative uh, domestic buildings were to be built. In Topolobambo, the apartment hotel organization is extended to the entire city, encouraging that cooperative household should not be limited to the organization of the building itself, but rather to uh, urban planning in general. We can, of course, we can find uh, certain similarities between these cases, these urban projects, and, and those produced during the Soviets. Probably the clearest example of this relation is town. An infinite linear city, where housing and transformation form a single entity. Towers act as milestones and host domestic services such as collective kitchens and laundries. Rotem um, preludes some of the linear solutions that were proposed later, such as sats Mil- Satsgorat, that I'm sure you will pronounce it better than I do. <laughs> So, uh, despite the interest of these urban proposals, none of them um, were built. The existing distance between their approach and the social reality prevented them from being able to be carried out. And uh, fortunately, despite the decay of the New Yorker Kitchenless buildings and the failure of these cooperative domestic city proposals, the phenomenon of communal services, as we have seen, was not only an American trend. The typology has appeared in different contexts, answering to a wide range of needs and circumstances. Last year, I received, as, um, as we mentioned before, the Wilbert Prize from Harvard GSD, um, to travel around and research what's going on nowadays regarding to that, so actual cases. And, uh, and I am actually find myself in the beginning of the trip. I've been just um, traveling for the recent months. And um, two months ago, I started uh, traveling to Senegal, um, where in some collecting housing buildings, the space of the kitchen is sometimes shared. This habit comes from the traditional Impluvium house, where the central space is used as for cooking, and sometimes by several people at the same time. So, in this case, for instance, there is a cultural reason, rather a commercial or a political. That's the the central core of the impluvium. After that, I went to Singapore. There, the government is supporting collective kitchens for the elderly, occupying the so-called void decks, the ones that we have in the picture. So, there are shared spaces for the community, basically. My next step will be to China. In China, collective domestic spaces and services are being promoted nowadays by the private sector. Lei Jun, the founder of the mobile phone company Xiaomi, is building affordable housing with shared spaces for young generations which salary can barely support the basic living cost. On the other hand, self-promoted, self-organized community kitchens are nowadays popping up in Canada and Australia where multiple associations promote this, kind, this type of collective kitchen to reduce consumes, waste, and labor, as well as to assure healthy food consumption. They are rising and growing a lot. In Canada, there are more than 1,500 communities already, and those are the ones that are registered much more with being kind of out of the scope. So in my point of view, these cases, these Canadian cases, are interesting due to their capacity to change a neighborhood with just the construction of a community's kitchen. So there's not the need to build a whole building in order to establish a collective domestic services, but just a part of it that can affect their existence. So as you can see, as it happened in the 19th century, actually, the typology answered to different needs and conditions. And of course, it goes beyond the political. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Anna. Now to introduce Helen Jarvis.
4: Thank you. And I'll try to step from these two previous uh, presentations and make some connections. I've, I've got, um, so I'm going to take you to the contemporary era, mostly to communities that I have visited or been a researcher in residence in for some time to get a sort of enacted experience of inhabiting these communal spaces. Um, but I'm taking you to the contemporary moment where, um, unlike many of the international examples, um, Referred to so far, but the struggles are really with privacy and property, and even with um, what's been referred to as a three C's: comfort, cleanliness, and convenience. <coughs> or trying to eschew those things in the kind of pragmatic quest for something much more communal. Um, the images on the continuous loop, are just background, they are images um, from a variety of, uh, of communities that I've spent time in, and I'm to if they're relevant. Um, but you'll notice that mostly it's about people, not buildings, and I'll come to that. Um, I'm going to start by making one point that I think is really important, and that is we are witnessing renewed communalism today, um, and that's why we're here today, and that's why this is such a topical theme. But I want a really cautious reading of this new communalism, um, particularly in the privileged Western worlds. Most of my research has been in Northern Europe, Uh, Denmark, Sweden, um, the um, Bay Area of the west coast of USA, and here in the UK. Um, So we are witnessing a lot of forming groups, um, co-housing, cooperatives, and other forms of intentional community. Um, And they do tap into an enduring legacy of this kind of yearning for connectedness, yearning yearning for togetherness. Um, I mean, the instincts are, are very... Very similar to what we have seen before. Uh, maybe the main difference is that the activists today are of all generations and have a variety of motivations. Many of you might have heard about the older women's co-housing group that were on the Women's Hour this morning um, in High Barnet. Um, it took 18 years for their community to come f- to fruition. And this is an age 50 plus community and many of the uh, founding pioneers didn't live to see their community um, complete, but they are those uh, living there now. So, my, we are witnessing renewed communalism, but we need to be very careful because we're also witnessing um, pseudo sharing and counterfeit communities. Um, and much of the new communalism has been um, commandeered and engineered and presented as a built environment that is not actually um, uh, authentic in terms of being an activist driven community. So in that respect, I want to make a distinction. It it might appear simplistic as a difference between top-down and bottom-up development. I'm speaking to uh, the fact that we need to look at new forms of citizenship, citizen-led grassroots development. It's not to bash experts, but it's to say that the built environment is a necessary uh, environment for congregation and togetherness and, and connectedness, but it's not sufficient to create the new relationships and the social architectures that are absolutely essential um, to to, to build communities uh, with very different forms of resilience that we need today. Um, And the second um, sort of, I suppose, cautionary tale I want to say is that the motivations for contemporary communal living are many and varied. They do uh, rest with a core yearning for connectedness, um, a yearning for connectedness which is, which can be seen as a utopian impulse, although I prefer to talk about pragmatic utopia, um, because most people want you know, action this day in my lifetime. I'm an activist myself, part of a community that's trying to get off the ground. It's fraught with difficulty. Most people are not living in dreams, they're living in realities. Um, but the motivations are many and varied, but they can just as well um, bring about strengthening of mutual support and conviviality, but they can also reinforce segregation. And so we have this real tension around the new communalism, which can mean that they create communities that are communities, um, but not in in society. So they can create as many of the kind of samenesses and um, erect metaphorical gates and borders and and boundaries. Uh, And so we have to be very careful about how we distinguish these. Uh, so in order to um, be very careful that I'm not being romantic about the communities we're seeing, um, in forming out of a wee rationality of intentional togetherness, not engineered togetherness but intentional fraught togetherness today, I want to just um, mention, I want to draw a couple of little vignettes. They're both from the um, communities of co-housing um, in the Bay Area. The first one, just, and these stories are just simply to show what I mean by the fact that there's a, we have to focus on the intangible qualities of building relationships and a social process of living collectively, as much as we have to worry about the architecture, the material architecture. The first example and I'm just using pseudonyms. Um, it doesn't matter what these people or places are called, but Mr. and Mrs. Chen, um, uh, forming family, two young children. We're trying to leave placeless um, sprawls, a common motivation. There must be a better way of living. We're driving everywhere, we've got two income households. Um, We're juggling all these different activities. There must be a better way. We want to connect parts of our fragmented life together and our relationships with each other as, as spouses, and as parents, and we think it takes a village to raise a child, we want to be with others. They went on a journey to look at a series of established co-housing communities, so they were settlers, not pioneers. They weren't building community, they were funding community, and that's quite a common story in the Bay Area. Um, so they looked at some, and they went to one where they told me, well, they were singing at every meal. It's a bit intense for us. That's On the continuum of privacy to communalism, that was a little bit too much down the, you know, um, we're going to be wearing caftans next. But they, find, they found their perfect community. Um, they moved in. Um, It was not a model of radical um, decommodification. I think it was a mix of rental and ownership. They did own their apartment. In the first two weeks of living there, they told a story to me of the fact that one day they came home and they found a loaf of banana bread on their kitchen table. And they thought, this wasn't here when we left the building. Um, Someone has come into our house and put this banana bread on the table. Um, And then they thought about it and... Well, OK, maybe that's how things get done around here. Then they talked to the neighbour and the neighbour said, oh, yes, I, I, I didn't leave the banana bread on the doorstep because the cats might get it. We put it on the table. Um, you know, we thought you would be hungry, having moved in and, and not used to it. Co-housing are small, um, stripped-down pri- uh, homes clustered around common-use spaces. So there's far less um, privatized living and far more living in a common house and cl- eating collectively. But in a suburban neighbourhood, that would have been called the police. Someone's been in our house and you know, done a sort of <laughs> un- unsolicited act of kindness. But in cohousing, this was part of the social process, and the cultures and the norms were developed over time, and it was considered to be. And, and what Mr. and Mrs. Chen did was they, they learnt learned what it took to, to um, kind of unlearn some of their paranoia and their fears of suburban living, and to actually reach out and become, you know, the, the sort of Become the communards that they wanted to be. Um, Another very little story um, is of of, uh, another community which had a very strong eco credential. When they were building, when they were designing collectively their community, they identified trees they wanted to preserve on the site and they tried to use any trees that were felled in the construction of the the buildings in the common house that they would have their meals in. There's one tree that they preserved, which was the axis of their. um, central space, they called it Grandmother Oak. Uh, But it took many years to to finish the community and the Grandmother Oak toppled over at the time when their common house was finished and they were gathering there for their first collective meals. So they they decided to actually sort of use the timber in the seating in the common house of the Grandmother Oak, put a picture over the fireplace, and uh, integrate the story of the Grandmother Oak into their common rituals. So this is a 1990s, you know, very contemporary sort of eco-co-housing community um, in the Bay Area. Um, The the message here is that individuals have histories, individuals have life courses, but in community, when the relationships are formed over collective participatory design and and the, the sheer tenacity it takes to build a collaborative community from scratch... Uh, the community makes, creates shared histories, shared memories. And these actually are enacted in such a way that they are very powerfully kind of written into the place. This is a real sense of a sense of belonging and a sense of place that probably isn't easily communicated as uh, a developer-led building, I suppose that's what I'm saying. Um, and I need to 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 wrap up. I wanted, uh, I suppose, to, to sort of hint then at. at at some of the contradictions uh, and tensions uh, around uh, this. And that is the fact that um, um, what we're witnessing today does resonate with what came out of Russia, but there are some um, significant sort of um, limitations. And partly it is this idea of, 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 of pragmatism. Um, and what it takes, the sheer hard work it takes to actually create communities from the the bottom up. And the other thing I suppose is to say that there's an enduring legacy, this yearning for connectedness that is a thread running through stories from Russia, Senegal. The difference today is that there are some um, uh, interferences. One is um, obviously we live in an era of 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 heightened communications technology. So there's a lot of of manipulating togetherness on peer-to-peer social media and platforms. There's a peer-to-peer platform in San Francisco, which is identified as a shareable capital of the world, which is actually called Peerbee, which is the difference between um, (coughs) nearby and people. So there's a lot of um, attempts to evoke the idea of communality, but without actually getting people together. So I think that's really something to be, that's the distinction and something that I would actually put out there as a, a, as a kind of caveat and a, and a warning um, for some of the, you know, I have emphasised here this images from Christiania as a very strong um, impulse from 1970s counterculture of people wanting to sort of have this festival economy and getting together. But uh, it is being disrupted, so there are these tensions today. I think I'll stop at that point. Thanks.
2: Thank you, Helen. Thank you, all our speakers, um, for three very different looks at this huge subject. Um, and I don't think there's one single question that I can ask all of you. But, um, I mean, what really came over, Helen, from your um, from your presentation, which was in part response to the mm-hmm. others, was um, that even though you're arguing for pragmatism and an awareness of some of the manipulation that's going on among developers and there's a kind of hijacking of certain terminology and all that kind of thing, um, that, but still you're, it was very impassioned, your plea, for the kind of need for this and there is a real idealism and romanticism at the heart of it and it seems that to get through a lot of the challenges that any community has to set up, there has to be a kind of driving idealism. Otherwise, well, it wouldn't happen. There has to be something bigger and maybe that energy is from the commune and not from one individual. And interestingly, we haven't talked about individuals today. It has all been talking about the group. And the next stage often is when an individual comes in and then troubles might start or a dominant individual. But um, I guess I'd like to ask um, about Um, this Mokalinski Lane commune, which this amazing photograph of these faces. And even though, I mean, to to ask you, partly in response to Helen, you know, how much was this a grassroots movement? How much was this imposed? Mm -hmm. What difficulties did they face in terms of sort of legislation? I mean, you can imagine some of the day-to-day problems with sharing underwear and that kind of thing. But with legislation, did they get that far? Or were were they like children playing? How seriously should we take this? And um, um, Anna, do you think any um, anything of what um, Andy was talking about? Do you think any of these lessons were shared with some of the kitchenless um, cities that you're looking at? And as an architect, do you think this is an important model to explore? Is this something you want to explore as an architect? So. Um,
3: uh, I'll start, start with you and well yeah. uh, First of all, yeah, I, I think I could have addressed some of those questions in my talk. I, I apologise if I seem sleep-deprived. My partner recently gave birth to my first daughter. We're two weeks in, and I don't know what sleep is. Um, so, thank you. Um, but this, uh, yeah, this McCrinsky Lane Commune, um, it's an interesting tension with these groups insofar as they, it is a grassroots movement, it is a youth movement, it's a youth activist movement. All these guys tend to be aspiring to, or just about to gain, consulment membership, so membership of the communist youth organisation in the Soviet Union. So they, they're kind of, they're revolutionary wannabes, the Bolshevik wannabes. So it's not like a kind of counterculture 60s hippie commune, it's, it's a bit more in cahoots with the state, but still not sanctioned by the Bolsheviks. And that might surprise people. You might think of kind of a totalitarian state um, starting in 1917, but the reality was the Soviet Union was far more messy and ad hoc than, than traditional views of the Soviet Union portray. So they're, they're, they're a mix of kind of um, from below, but playing with the official language of the state, playing with this idea of the new way of life, which is being promoted in Pravda, which is being promoted in other news outlets of the Soviet Union. So it's a mix... Uh, And their significance can be seen, I think, in in their numbers. One thing I neglected to mention is, yes, they started off predominantly in small groups, maybe kind of 10 people in in an apartment or a student dormitory, maybe a few hundred people playing around with this in Petrograd, playing around perhaps being the way of describing it. But as it gets picked up by the press, as it becomes an example of this new way of life, taking root in the Soviet Union and it spirals and spirals. Those numbers increase. By the time we get to the mid-20s and by the time Trotsky has published in 1923 his Problems of Everyday Life, which promote the issue of cultural revolution into um, the kind of high order, um, they're growing to the thousands. And by the end of the 20s, the Komsomol, the Communist Youth Organization, are predicting that there are 50,000 young activists across European Russia that are playing around with this idea and that these numbers grow up to 100 or 1,000 as they become mixed up with the first five-year plan and brigade teams, which is something somewhat different, but it's kind of collective work groups as opposed to just collective um, commune groups. So these they, they, they become much bigger things. They get um, There are a number of studies commissioned by the consomol uh, that start to promote them um, and start to kind of Praise them for what they do, but they never go so far as giving them full state backing and full financial backing. So they're kind of in limbo, Uh, and this is why ultimately, come kind of 32, they fall apart very rapidly because the state becomes more professionalised. Everything has to go through the institutions of the Soviet Union, and therefore that kind of ground-up element of revolution is, is lost. The, the parameters of revolutionary debate are narrowed, mm. and that's what Stalinism is really all about, the narrowing. So there isn't this kind of beautiful um, opportunity for, for utopian action from the ground, for people to try and play and understand this thing called socialism, trying to come to grips with it. Uh, and, and that's what these, these groups are really about, and that's where their significance lies, I would suggest. Mm. That's really really interesting,
2: um, Anna. Do you think that um, do you think it is possible to build um, to sustain communal living without any politics? Do Do you
0: agree with that? <laughs> um, uh, first, we should define what is politics, uh, mm-hmm. and of course, um, my role here is to kind of be provocative uh, on that. Um, uh, basically, because I know that there's relations between uh, all these uh, systems that I was talking about, so I knew for sure that uh, that uh, Albert Camusio and this uh, social utopist uh, knew pretty well how the apartment hotel, the, the the buildings that I was talking, with share domestic services were being built. Basically, because he himself designed with uh, together with a, an architect and Mary. Holland, um, one of them, and they, they were quite similar, so at the time for sure they were looking each other. So social utopists with uh, pure commercial uh, entrepreneurs, and and this situation for me it's really interesting. And regarding the relation with um, with the Soviets, it's not that clear or yet or, or at least yet it's not clear for me if there's a street uh, um, a straight relation between what was going on in the, in, in the United States at that time in the 19th century and the consequence, uh, what happened then in the Soviets. Uh, it's really well known that there were a lot of cultural uh, connections and I'm pretty sure there might be some. Maybe some in the public could help me out, somebody in the public could help me out with that because I haven't even yet figured out um, for sure. But one of the consequences of the decay of the typology in the United States was exactly the race of uh, the communal living in the Soviet. So um, it's well known, uh, the Red Guard and uh, all all the consequences of that movement in the States so any sign of collectivity was suddenly uh, bad perceived and uh, together with the 1929 uh, crash, um, everything uh, kind of uh, uh, turned into a bad uh, moment for collectivity. Um, and basically my interest on regarding your, your second question that you were asking me as an architect, um, why I'm interested in it. so how we should explore these cases nowadays. I think that what is really interesting of this uh, sharing um, situation is at the end that there's a blurring in the limit between the uh, domestic sphere and the urban sphere. So somehow there's a domestication of the urban and, uh, and that means that at the end it's a better quality of life. Mm. So, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, uh, going on from that, actually, I wanted to ask you, Helen. And uh, what do people want from this communal living? Uh, so you talked about this yearning for a closer mm. connection, but is it about having more time? And and if there's more time, what do people do with that time? Because <coughs> in the Soviet Union, the, the the question there's still the question is still sort of out there. Did did women really benefit from mm. the um, communalisation of domestic chores or Did they did it just free up more time for drinking? Um, For example, for example, I mean, if you look at sort of 70s, 80s Russia, that is the picture largely in, in working class areas, anyway. So did, was there a real benefit? And so, looking at the the, the countries that you're looking yeah. at, what what do people well, want? And there's
4: no simple answer to that, but I can say on the drinking one, although it's definitely not on the scale of um, sort of vodka drinking. One of the one of the communities uh, in the north of England, I won't identify which one it was, but um, that did grow out of the 1970s. It was very much a kind of the the the, the impetus for the community was um, a bunch of local authority. Um, workers, uh, working in the housing office, I think, planning and housing, um, that, that, um, that found that it was really frustrating that the pubs shut at 11 o'clock and they kind of had this sense of wouldn't it be great if, you know, there was a place where we could hang out together and there was no sort of limit to the drinking out. So uh, there is a community that, that thrives today, average age about 70, um, because, you know, people have moved there and, and, and endured, um, which basically came out of a real ale drinking society. Um, so there is a... But that's a little story. But I kind of wanted to pick up on... I, I kind of meant to maybe wanted to uh, rectify... <laughs> if I didn't want to give the impression that I was pitching a kind of counterfeit, pseudo-developer-led um, communality from an authentic grassroots. I actually think that... I mean, I'm, a, I'm a geographer, and so I really think through multiple scales of... Um, uh, literal scales, but also sales, scales of living, and there is a, something about the fact that um, quite a lot of researchers said that you know the, the scale of belonging is kind of really twenty to thirty households. It's quite a close knit, small scale of belonging, but that's not a scale of belonging that is particularly good for um, self sufficiency or livelihood. It's certainly not a particularly good scale for begun to release all people from the, you know the, the hard work of what it takes. Most of the motivations for for the yearning for togetherness, is to realise some greater gender democracy, social justice, uh, levelling. But that scale of belonging quite often does result in, you know, a bunch of friends who don't want the pub to shut at them. So quite often the scale of belonging comes from a sense of sort of homophily or sameness. But I've... Um, I don't, so I don't want to romanticise what can be achieved on that small scale, but it's also very important not to destroy that and try to scale up something you know we've got a formula of a commu- commu- coming there are some, some successful low impact um ecological demonstration projects now in 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 britain and there is a real sort of discourse at the moment I'm saying let's do more of them let's enable this to sort of not take 18 years to bring to fruition to to, to turn these around in 18 months instead but rather than scaling up we want to scale out the niche development, because this is what's incubating fantastic um, learning and uh, innovation. And so I I take inspiration from Ivan Illich's phrase, and this is a connection back to your, uh, uh, not a Russian, but um, from the 1973 book, uh, The Tools of Conviviality, because he talked about the commune of communes. You do have to have the small scale of belonging, but there's nothing to say that you can't then cluster the clusters and learn and, and, and form associations that strengthen. So you talk about the empowered niche. The niche is really important for that side of transformation, but you can empower it. The state can enable it. There's nothing to say the state is bad, grassroots is good, but the state has to not engineer, has to enable. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, sorry, that's, um, that was a bit of rant. No, no, it's, it's
2: true, <laughs> because if the state isn't uh, cooperating, then... And if the developers are gaining from legis- changes in legislation or they're lobbying for them, it can be that the smaller groupings don't get the or legislation appropriating sweat equity and yeah. working
4: off of the profit. And, yeah. and, you know, do it together, not do it yourself, is, is the, 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 the motto now.
2: And it, and it often feels in this country, you know, the English how home is his castle and everything, that there's so much resistance to kind of loosening the laws around communality. The
4: interesting thing when you look, studies some of the co-housing research is um, as disproportionately female, um, and also quite a lot of introverts are attracted to small scale community. So it dispels some of the ish, mish, myths about this idea of it's all about the hippies. It's not. It's very supportive for single parents, for non traditional families, um, for ageing, combating loneliness, and also a lot of it's come out of voluntary simplicity movements. So it's about people who really do want to enact. Um, uh, an idea of sustainable degrowth and actually scaling down the, the resource depletion. So, there are some probably some motivations that both continue the Russian impulse but also now contemporize it and, and, and add to it the dilemmas that we're living in a, in a you know, we're not living a one planet existence. And most communities want to do that.
2: And there is the commercial element that you've touched upon, and that is active, and even if it's not got such a strong ideological basis. There are these, like the Trampery in in London, and these commercial models which are focused on kind of incubating small businesses, but they're also, they need a successful community around them, so they do need the set of values to be cultivated at the same time. Let's open it up to the floor, and I'm sure there's a lot of opinions about some contemporary housing models. Please ask questions about the historical aspect of this evening's talk as well. And please introduce yourself when you speak. Thank you. Uh,
3: Callum Campbell, architecture student at Westminster. Anna? Uh, I had a question for you about you mentioned something about in New York, forgive me if I caught it wrongly, but no. that the height of the buildings built as communal living
5: wasn't restricted in the, or wasn't restricted in the same way?
0: No.
3: I just wondered, could you tell me a little bit more
0: about that? Yeah, for, for me, that's quite interesting actually because. Um, It's true, as you were mentioning, that uh, somehow um, nowadays, cooperative, co-housing, any kind of uh, communal living has to be supported by the government somehow to make it uh, economically efficient or not, not necessarily, but sometimes uh, it's the other way around. So the government didn't pretend it to happen, and suddenly it happens because there's a lack uh, there's kind of a fracture in in the in the law that you can feel there, mm-hmm. and suddenly your system is much more economical, and that was hap- that exactly what happened. So the the housing law of 1901, uh, the, in the scope of the law, there there was not included uh, housing, kitchenless houses with communi- community kitchens. So suddenly they could rebuild much more apartments in the same lot, and suddenly also the services were super cheap. So it was the same amount, it cost the same amount of money to rent an apartment with kitchen to, or, an, or to rent an apartment without kitchen, but collective services, which mean, meant at that time nurseries, kindergartens, uh, a professional cooker, the laundry, everything was included, the food was included. So, and what is is interesting also is that the typology also changed through time. So at the end, people start to uh, implement their apartments by installing a little kitchenette. So at the end, also, the collectivity was uh, by choice, which make it, uh, at the end, a true collectivity, Mm -hmm. not a forced one, which is really important for those successful cases, at least the ones that I visited. That's one of the main rules. So it has to be a voluntary uh, collectivity in order to be kind of a real mm. togetherness, right? Um, yeah, so b- the law matters a lot.
6: Hi, thank you so much for your talk. My name is Anastasia. I'm doing PhD in Russian avant-garde in Queen Mary. Um, I wanted to leave a comment that I think is relevant to all three papers, that communal leaving gives you a utter feeling of alienation if it's not voluntary. As a young kid, I lived in a communal flat in the Soviet Union. It was an absolute nightmare. Everyone hated everyone, and there was no sense of communal living whatsoever. So, you know, this sense of belonging only exists when communal living is voluntary. Whether you're a young idealist and you want to live in a commune, whether you're an elderly person and you choose it as your way of living. Yeah, and when it's involuntary, it always causes opposite effect.
3: That's referring to the Komonalka or Komonalki in, in Russia of the Zoom, which has been referred to by a great historian Richard Stitz as the parody of communalism. So it's <laughs> perhaps the young activists that I've talked about today are, you know, pure utopian communal activism in, in the flesh. And and as those ideas are perhaps not possible by the early thirties, what's left, Richard Stitz suggests, was this parody of communalism, which was the standard way of living across much of the Soviet Union thereafter.
4: Um, Hello, I'm Yasmin Sharif. I'm an architect. I was just wondering um, if you could give uh, any background to the connections between the ideas about utopian cities, so the garden cities, and what was going on in Russia, because there must have been... Exchange. So absolutely. I
3: mean, th- this is all part of, of the discourse of what was collectivism. Collectivism more than communalism was the kind of phrase that was banded around. And the word collectivism, Russian taking on Western words, um, was seen as synonymous with socialism by the, the turn of the 20th century. So the idea of the garden city was being talked about as, as the way of, of designing. The ideal society. Uh, and so you have grand divisions of, of developing cities. You know, famous Soviet city, is built. Um, the idea that you could include green space within the, the, these areas and, and create the perfect harmonised society. All of that is, is kind of banding around with the Impravda, banding around with various Soviet journals. Um, so you can have the grand vision of a new city or a garden city in a, in a Soviet landscape, or you can have it right down to the minutiae of the kids that I've shown you today, where they're playing around with those big ideas. And because those big ideas cost money, money that after seven years of war, revolution and civil war, from First World War in, into the 1920s, money that the Soviet Union didn't have to build these things, didn't have to build these kitchenless um, cities, uh, these young activists are playing, mm. with, playing with these ideas because these promises are just, as the Russians refer to, the, to this. Paper architecture. They didn't exist, it was just talked about. So yes, that that inspiration does come across from Europe, from across the world, um, but it doesn't necessarily take root in exactly the same way, um, and, it's, and, and different ideas get, gain traction at different points. I'll
4: just make a point on that as well, because then I'd like to make a plea for the... The, the, the Garden Cities uh, movement was a, it was a real missed opportunity, and it's, it's not, not always known that... Um, Ebenezer Howard um, appropriated the ideas of Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who wrote fantastic feminist tracts about um, the cooperative quadrangle, the idea of kind of collectivized. domestic work, particularly for single women who were very much discriminated at the end of the 19th century. Um, And she wrote about the tyranny of the single family dwelling. In fact, she was writing about that at a time when the single family dwelling was only just coming into its heyday. But Ebenezer Howard, being the successful male architect who could master plan and ideas and and had the sort of power, um, appropriated uh, Charlotte's uh, really, really kind of uh, prescient sort of thinking and, and And actually it was a missed opportunity because she was thinking very much on the scale of the domestic revolution. She was, along with later Dolores Hayden, writing about um, the sort of the tyranny of of individual women being sort of imprisoned in their kitchens. Um, I mean, which is where the kitchenless idea came from. Uh, But of course the kitchenless city then also then uh, means that some women's privilege to escape um, the kitchen through um, service departments was borne down by less privileged women further down the care chain. But Ebenezer um, Howard appropriated this idea and masterplanned it, but the socialist zeal was then ripped away and, and, and I think there was never really any full fulfilment of the cooperative quadrangle which was uh, originally Sherlock Higgins-Gilman's idea.
7: Yes, I'd also like to just comment on the Soviet system. Um, I studied Russian and was fortunate or unfortunate enough to be uh, studying and working out just before the Soviet Union collapsed and saw firsthand how the system was working or not working. Um, And... I just think Andy might have given a little bit of a rose-tinted view of how things were. Um, My understanding was it was actually originally a social experiment. Um, They took the kitchens out because they wanted to get the women out working and stop the time that the women were spending on household chores and cooking and just wanted to actually probably in some respects um, exploit women to get them into the workforce and to uh, rapidly industrialise the country. Um, At the same time that they created these horrendous places where they were living, which were still in existence until the mid-90s over there, where you had whole families living in one small room, um, living within a flat, um, with the circumstances being just too horrendous to uh, explain, uh, you just couldn't. If you haven't seen them, then you, you probably, like the girl at the end of the row here, you probably can't understand just how bad they were. Um, it was a nightmare situation. Meanwhile, the party elite were living in fantastic flats and also very nice statues, which people didn't realise. So the whole system really just collapsed, rightly so, and was a social experiment right from day one.
3: Well, you're, you're not wrong. Um, the examples I'm giving of the, the urban communes, in the tw- mainly in the 20s, are young activist groups. Um, they're, they're not what go on to be the commonalka or commonalki that you're referring to, um, which is a, is a form of living out of necessity as opposed to uh, an intentional community, a creation of activists. They're two different things. Um, And the idea of releasing women into the workforce is was is in there from the beginning. Uh, Alexandra Collanti was was talking about this before 1917. That was precisely the idea. We make um, kitchenless homes and have um, grand communal kitchens that can serve thousands of workers after work. Um, Say five o'clock, six o'clock at night, you go to one um, communal kitchen in a in a city. That is the idea is that you release. Half the labor, half the population, the women, into the workforce, not to exploit them. The you know ideology, uh, ideologically, <coughs> that wasn't the idea. The idea is that you be more productive than the bourgeois capitalist system because you let women work, rather than just work being a, a space for men folk. Now, I'm not <coughs> claiming that's what the Soviet Union was. The Soviet Union was, in reality, deeply patriarchal um, and didn't fulfill those ambitions. But it was in there, the, the, the ideology, ideology was there from the get go. It's exactly what Alexandra Kollontai, a key Bolshevik feminist, was talking about that you release women into the workforce, socialism proves itself to be more efficient than capitalism. We produce more because we have more workers, and also with that, we create the more moral society because women are equal to men. That's, that's the idea. How it comes to play across the Soviet Union, it's a very different picture, you're quite right. Um, but, you know, the, the ambition w- w- was there from the beginning.
6: Quite a, a similar point to some extent. Um, I've also lived in Russia and um, <laughs> have some similar points around communal living. But my point was around that when you describe communes and actually voluntary communal living, it is a, a brilliant way of life in, in, kind of a, in, a, in a way that connects individuals into something greater than an individual But the way that all three of you have described it has been a bit of kind of a niche interest, that real communes throughout the last hundred years. It's never really scaled off. And examples of when communal living has scaled off, it's been pretty government led. So in Russia, where it was around the Industrial Revolution that made them kind of adopt communal living and about bringing workforce Um, into the big industrial factories, or when it was kind of top-down in New York by accident, but kind of top-down, they weren't scaled and they weren't seen as kind of the alternative model to life. One could argue that now there is a bit of another kind of opportunity of economic factors, cost of childcare, ageing population, that could lead to another top-down push for communal housing. Um, And I'd be interested in your views of what lessons do you think could be taken from kind of all of your studies around making sure that that top-down push isn't a failure that we discussed in another 50 years, but actually creates that kind of alternative form of housing? Helen, do you want to start with
2: that? Do you see any top-down um, development of this kind?
4: Well, I think I think it's very important. To, um, I, I, I would take exception slightly to the idea that this is just a niche interest. I think there are some really important lessons that transfer from the, the niche uh, sites of experimentation, um, the the diggers and dreamers and the pioneers, and and a good example of that, and it makes maybe a little bit of a scale connection between, um, you know, the tramperies and the the co-production spaces that you're familiar with here, particularly in in London, Um, less successful in Newcastle, I have to say. Um, um, The middle scale would be something like the Burning Man Festival, temporary pop-up city, 60,000 visitors. It's a festival city, so it's a temporary... As temporary experiment in communalism, you could say it's people playing at it. But on a huge scale, no state involvement. It's a sort of meso scale of um, uh, entrepreneurialism. Um, it's it's one of that the, the, the it has ten principles. A key principle is like ne- leave no trace and radical inclusion, radical participation, and volunteering. So it's an experiment in a kind of civil society, which means we don't have to be at the scale of a niche of. Taking forever to you know build six houses and sweat equity and build ourselves. Um, we don't need the state. We can actually kind of scale this to the point of actually <coughs> transforming the way that we think about <coughs> working collectively. So I think that there are some lessons that transfer that we don't have to think of as being settled and and and, and maybe um, I mean we get to a bit fixated with models, you know. And I think that there are some lessons in social. Um, you know, co-present interaction and of social learning through group dynamics. Another example would be one of the slides I included was a, a tiny village or opportunity village in, in Eugene. This is um, you know the city has gifted some land, zero rent, to a homeless project, and small tiny houses, um, which uh, have an, on a basically sort of sites and services car park, you know, have built these very, very tiny houses. For um, There's no building control, no building regulations, so you've really reduced the, the, the standards of, of construction. A collective yurt, computer hub, so they've got broadband, they've got Wi-Fi. Um, homeless people are taken off the streets, and usually they're living in their cars, and, you know, a fraction of the cost... Sort of, and, but, but what's incubated there, which is more valuable than the, the, the shelters is a kind of collective welfare so there's an opportunity to bring in you know um, barbers and, and, and uh, collective laundry and a bit skills training and, and uh, it's a transition to sort of um, a step up so I think I think so yeah I think that, that we have to get not hung up about how tiny and how marginal these communal livings are. There are really important lessons. And actually, if we're talking about resilient cities, if we're talking about resilient cities Are we're going to get away from, if we're going to start talking about um, scales of, of resilience, about flooding and all of the... We're um, living far beyond our um, scarce resources. In an ageing society, we need much more mutual support and alternative wealth. We've got to look for these sites of learning for the solutions because the state cannot... Top-down providing would probably crush any innovation happening if they did anyway, and the grassroots can't they can't scale out of the margins without some sort of um, enablement.
2: Anna, are you are you seeing through your research communal living on quite a large scale? Or...
0: Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, uh, yeah. Totally. Um, I just want to follow up uh, what uh, Helen was saying because for me it's quite something that it's quite controversial. <coughs> uh also, Helen pointed out before, that the controversy of uh, communality without <coughs> the fact that people is getting together. So, communality is nowadays somehow well seen. It's a tendency. So, brands are using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we buy uh, communal product. I mean, this kind of... And that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But also... Um, I, there's also something that is really dangerous, uh, for instance, uh, one of the cases that it's kind of outstanding here in Europe is the Sack Fabric in Vienna. Uh, for those that you don't know the case, is a community that has been running for decades now and it's quite large and now it has become kind of even a cultural center. It's a really a center of uh, the culture of Vienna, uh, super powerful. So for me, uh, it's an interesting case, but also kind of a scaring. In uh, the sack fabric, uh, in your rent, you have included a social security, so, which means that if you uh, are kicked out of your job, the community is going to support you economically. If you have a health problem, the community is going to support you also with that. So my problem is, to a certain point, we're kind of spoiling governments. Mm. Mm. so i don't know i'm coming from Spain, and our health insurance is really competitive it's really good i don't want our housing communities uh, spoiling our government because the government has a duty we have we are paying taxes for that so we have to be aware that this always has to be a balance there ha- has to be a balance so it's good to have uh, a community that helps you out in certain uh, moments, but it also hasn't been it doesn't have to be too strong because governments have to be there.
2: Well, this seems to be the nub of a lot of what we're talking about. What is the relationship between these communities and the government? Because if that doesn't work, then we're talking about something totally different. We're talking about sort of states that are coming independent or something, and that isn't, that's another matter altogether. Mm. So, well,
4: yeah. There's no coincidence that we are seeing a, a resurgence of a new communalism when the state is... Uh, is uh, Well, the housing system is dysfunctional. It's completely bankrupt. Um, and, uh, and, and, and in austerity, uh, alternative forms of... New forms of citizenship, of self-help and do-it-yourself is seen to be the alternative. So there really does have to be this sense of um, critique. Of, of, and also a critique because it's not only the, the branding that's dangerous. It's also the fact that, that we have to admit that most of the collective living that's intentional... Um, is uh, and, 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 and is fraught with difficulty and challenging, is, is actually quite bourgeois. I mean, there is a middle-class um, uh, demographic to the new communalism in most affluent societies because they're the ones that are most best equipped to sort of almost shore up the absence of the state, the incapacity of the state to actually provide education and health can be sure so it's a kind of a private insurance scheme and that's a really dangerous thing and that's why there's been some negative pejorative comparisons made between co-housing for instance and gated communities personally i critique that but i think that we do have to watch the affordability of the trampery the you know uh,
0: these are pretty well, that, actually yeah. good It's quite interesting, because actually the most outstanding country nowadays producing cooperative housing is Switzerland.
7: Mm.
3: Just just coming back to that (laughs) that question, what what we're kind of all getting at as well, is whether what's this, what are these groups, uh, what are their failures and what are their successes? Um, And are we dealing with something niche, as you say? I guess what you mean is, are they just islets, are they just isolated beings? Well, if we look at what really utopian socialism and, um, and these kind of utopian kind of um, commune groups that we've been talking about today, if you look at what they were from the beginning, if you go back to Robert Owen's uh, New Harmony in America or New Atlantic, their reactions to a nascent developing capitalist world. Uh, Robert Owen wanted to make these communities both function as work, worker environments, but more, as the clues in the title, New Harmony, a more harmonious, caring society that didn't trample on uh, the workers. And so in that sense, I don't care that Robert Owen's New Harmony failed insofar as it didn't replicate itself and didn't spread across the globe. The commune itself fails, but the ideas, in a different way, continued because Robert Owen's ideas are the foundation of the cooperative movement, and went on to be the foundation of the cooperative movement across the nineteenth century into the twentieth century. So the point with that is, these commune groups don't have to multiply in order to be a success; they are fundamentally connected and responding to issues of the day. So the the more controversial kind of commercial elements of co-living today, for mm. instance, um, problematic, yes, because they try and appropriate radical socialist language but they are themselves responding to a housing crisis particularly in London today that's why uh, the the collective at Old Oak has developed for instance it's responding to the fact that young people can't have a decent standard of living they have to live in student squats effectively uh, well into their 30s and 40s potentially Um, so all these groups all these developments are fundamentally connected to everything else that's going on around them. They're not islets, they're not isolated niches, they're a response to the world around them. And their success doesn't need to be seen in how they're replicated, it needs to be seen in how they are interpreted, their ideas live on in different ways thereafter. And I think that's what's important about communal living, communal groups, utopian ambitions.
2: Thank you. Um, We've got time for one more question.
5: Uh, Niké MacDonald, interested party, um, and one-time resident of the Barbican and Golden Lane, um, for which I'd be interested for any reflections about. We haven't really talked about the UK very much, apart from the North East, about examples in London of communal living and what can be learned from that. And I think there's an, another example of a kitchenless living in the area too, which is Florian Court, which is on Charterhouse Square, um, which was built in the 30s. I think either for young people men or clerks in the city to live in, or even for young women, I'm not quite sure. Um, so what's been learned from those kind of areas of communal living? And to Andy, I'd be interested in the origins of the thinking about communal living in the Soviet Union, particularly around Engels, the origins of the family private property in the state, which is, seems to be very much shaping that thinking, although I'm not clear how. And anybody, i have been interested in updating it today, particularly thinking about the challenges of communal living in a society where trust is at a low ebb. I've been reading Michael Young's book, um, uh, uh, Family and Kinship in East London, which is very much about, we talked a bit earlier on about the terraced housing and the way that families live very close to each other, people left their doors open, that old cliche, but you know there's some truth in it. Uh, whereas that's very much not the case today, and what are the challenges for communal living where we see each other as being a problem and distrust each other in a way that historically perhaps we had stronger bonds that would have facilitated communal living. So there's quite a lot there, sorry. <laughs>
3: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, be, being the historian on the panel, I want to kind of take this back to the origins. And what Engels is often referring to in that book uh, as, as an attempt to find a, a practical example, he's referring back to the Paris Commune of 1871, first socialist insurrectionary, Event uh, apparently, um, and he says that there are examples of how housing was appropriated or taken, requisitioned, sorry, in the Paris Commune <coughs> and shared out more equally, and that's something that can be copied, and that's a lesson that many Bolsheviks cling to. Lenin clings to as well. Lenin talks about that in his uh, tract, which is to be done. No, sorry, state and Revolution" from nineteen eighteen. So directly referencing that. But also fundamentally what's happening there is this is where the word commune, or komuna, as the Russians refer to it, comes back to. It's, it's the trendiness of connecting yourself to the Paris Commune of 1871, the first socialist insurrectory event. So these young groups that I've been talking about call themselves communes, yes, and, and we would understand them as a commune. They, they fit our understanding of what a commune is. But also, the word commune is being banded around all over the place in the early 20s, so every orphanage that is set up in the Soviet Union is called uh, a youth commune. Um, various buildings are called communes, even if they're nothing to do with commune living. So it's a kind of... As it's, it's much as anything, it's a trendy word as well. But I don't want to kind of take over the end of the panel. So.
4: Do
2: either of you want to respond to...? Well,
4: just to say that, that yes, the UK... Um, well, we have, uh, I'm, I'm on the um, uh, board of the UK co-housing network. We have 18 established co-housing communities in the, in the, in the UK and 70 forming groups uh, at a conservative estimate at the moment at various stages of Uh, you know the burning souls talking usually uh you know without any space and and those people who actually sort of trying to option on land and the um uk struggles and and it it is land and finance um yes there are examples you know water seagull and there are some examples of kitchener's hose um i think the the um the realization of some of these ideas have always has always struggled more in the uk than other places i've looked at Um, and actually, interestingly, you mentioned the northeast doesn't have. We're actually a bit of a, a, a barren wasteland of, 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 of community. We're working very hard on our local thing. Um, the, the place to look for for sort of um, some real scale action at the moment is, is Leeds Community Homes, which is uh, it's got uh, lilac as the epicentre, lilac, which is low income living, affordable community. Um, so there's no, no lilac colour there at all. It's simply an acronym. Um, very successful straw bale construction. 26. Um, it's a co-op. Cooperative co-housing, um, and it's the epicenter of a crowd-funded community homes um, umbrella organisation, which is advocating for much more of this community housing in partnership with housing associations. And so, so we're going too much to the housing side, but but it's just to give a bit of a plug: the fact that you know we're not a basket case. The UK uh, there's a there's um, but but we we really have got some structural impediments: land and finance, and planning system, and uh, the fact that. Um, you know, If you look at most developers who have a, a land bank uh, and, and, and uh, can sit on, and they have a very long-term vision for many of these developments, no, no longer than many of the utopian activist groups. It's just that the, the groups are working against the grain of all structures that are in place to allow capital development to, to sort of you know, manipulate its way through boom and bust cycles. But the, 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 the burning souls, you know, they have to keep on burning. And quite I mean, there's a very high failure rate um, of groups that don't make it. And, and a lot of the failures, yes, it's land and finance, not being able to get that, but it's also the failure of the fact that to actually maintain that momentum and good relationships, I can speak from experience of this, it's a very fraught experience and, um, you know, so... Well, but yeah. Get super yeah. painful.
2: <laughs> no, I, I had experience of working with some, uh, community land trusts in Liverpool, and that over many, they were working together over decades, and it was really hard to maintain those relationships. And yeah, it, it, so look, we've got a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It was a very stimulating discussion. Thank you so much, Helen, Anna,
6: and you